Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is On Becoming. I'm hoping that you're enjoying listening to the podcast. You probably have noticed that there haven't been any new episodes for a while, and that's partly because I was away in beautiful Springfield, Missouri, and then Palm Springs, partly due to the Gadamer course, and partly due to my lack of internet. I was visiting a friend in California who simply doesn't have internet service, and then I returned to Scotland to find that my internet service had been cut off. That's kind of an amusing story, but I will uh, resist the urge to tell it. So it's only been in the last couple of days that it's been back and running. As always, if you're finding the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please do consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Let me invite you to get in touch about the podcast if you have comments or questions or suggestions. And don't forget that you can hear the audio version of this podcast wherever you get your audio podcasts, and the video version is on YouTube. The New York Times columnist Ross Douthat recently published an article titled, Where Does Religion Come From? To be honest, the article is somewhat of a mess. That's a strong statement, so I'll be spending some time trying to make sense of what it is he's saying and consider some of the comments that are made in response. There were about 1,600 comments. He begins with a surprising point of departure that Ayan Hirsi Ali, whom Douthat describes as an ex-Muslim critic of Islamic fundamentalism and longtime champion of Enlightenment liberalism. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, that this person has converted to Christianity. According to Douthat, uh, by the way, I'm not sure really how he pronounces that name. I've heard him pronounce it more than one way. Uh, so we'll go with doubt that or do that. Anyway, her conversion, according to him, I'm not sure that's really the right word, but it's the one he uses. He says it's due to two things. Uh, again, I'm just going here on the basis of what he has said. The first is that, and here I'm quoting, atheist materialism is too weak a base upon which to ground Western liberalism. And thus, According to Douthat, uh, again I'm quoting, the biblical tradition from which the liberal West emerged offers a sure foundation for her values. As we'll see, the supposed dichotomy that Douthat draws between Christianity and what he calls atheist materialism is not so clear-cut as he wants to suggest. In short, they're much more closely related than that. However, there's a strong impetus on either side to maintain that the other side is something completely and utterly different. In other words, many Christians, though not all, see themselves as up against secular materialism, which is seen as the undesirable other side. Conversely, those who consider themselves to be secular or materialists or atheists or agnostics often see themselves as opposed to those who are religious. Given the contours of thinking the fact that they've been shaped so strongly by Christianity in the West. The opposition is usually seen as being between those who identify as Christian versus those who do not. Of course, perhaps the most obvious problem is that both sides have so little understanding of the other. 
It's easy to dismiss the atheistic materialist as deluded and unable to appreciate what religion, specifically Christianity, has given us. Conversely, those atheist materialists, or however they wish to identify themselves, tend to dismiss religious people as, well, let's say, not very sophisticated or maybe even just a little bit stupid. But as I say, most of these dismissals on both sides are based on very little understanding of the other side. The second reason for her supposed conversion is that she could not live a life, and now I'm quoting, without any spiritual solace. A life that uh, Delthat considers unendurable. His explanation for this desire for solace is that, and now I'm quoting from him, the personal need for religion reflects the fear of death or the desire for cosmic meaning. I'm not sure why Delthat uses the conjunction or, since both of these are common reasons for interest in religion in a personal sense, and I suspect most religious people would see these as fully compatible. Of course, while these are perfectly understandable reasons for people to accept some kind of religious system or view, or, as I would prefer to put it, way of life, for most people who would qualify as religious, there's much more at stake than merely a fear of death or a desire for cosmic meaning, as important as these things are. By saying that religion is a way of life, I mean to suggest that the primary aspect of religion is practice. Beliefs come into play, of course, but even a cursory study of church history shows that beliefs, particularly those of a very specific theological nature, are less important than something like the faith that Jesus is a good person to follow. In Acts 2, there's an account of many people coming to faith on Pentecost, and the clear implication of the passage is that people were signing up because they found the message attractive. Acts 2, 46-47 says that Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the good will of all the people. Dothat points out that she was soundly criticized, not least by Christians who found her move to Christianity suspect. As Dothat puts it, the problem was the lack of, and now I'm quoting, a clear statement that Christian claims are not merely useful or necessary, but true. I can easily see why Douthat wants to set up a world in which there are true believers in Christianity and also true believers in materialistic science or whatever you want to call it, and no longer believe in God. Such a way of looking at things makes the world much neater and tidier than it actually is. The main problem with such a view is that it implies that everyone falls into discrete categories, the God-lovers and the science-lovers. To be sure, there are many evangelicals who have a dim view of science, but it's simply not true that even all evangelicals share such a view. The view also assumes that people on both sides are committed to the truth of their side or their tribe. But such a view is not nearly as reflective reality as Douthat seems to think. While there are fully committed people on both sides of this supposed divide, many people just simply aren't as easily categorized as this. It's not merely that being a Christian and being a scientist are not mutually exclusive viewpoints. It's also that one may have leanings one way or the other, but not be quite as certain as Douthat seems to want or expect. And this point is reinforced by the other criticism, which came from atheists who thought that she had sold out to religion. 
Many people on both sides want something like exclusive allegiance. You can believe in science or you can believe in religion. You just can't believe in both. Just to be clear, I don't think there's anything like a clear-cut choice here, and I'm highly suspicious of anyone peddling such a view. If anything, I find myself picking and choosing which beliefs make sense to me, and I don't respond well to people who suggest that I simply need to choose one or the other. But let's go back to Douthat's first reason for criticizing Ali, that she converts to Christianity out of pragmatic reasons rather than because she's a true believer or because she thinks Christianity is true. I'm not sure that being convinced that something is true is necessary in order to embrace it. One might just think that embracing Christianity would be better than not doing so, without having anything like certainty one way or the other. Well, the term faith is often seen to be the religious equivalent of belief, we've already seen in a previous episode that the term usually translated as a belief in the New Testament means something like having faith in someone. That could be put in terms of being confident that so-and-so is a good guy to follow. But if that's the case, then Jesus' own disciples were not necessarily certain regarding him in various ways. We get this lack of certainty and, frankly, often just bewilderment in the first gospel, the one attributed to Mark. By the time the Gospel of John gets written, the early Christian community clearly has gotten more clarity. But one must remember that this gospel was written about 60 years after Jesus had died. There is no way that the author of John could have been alive and witnessed the events reported in the text, so clearly he's getting his information from others. My point is not to discredit the Gospel of John, merely to point out what it is and thus what it isn't, namely, it's not a first-person account. But I want to point out that many people who are Christians probably got there, at least at first, through some sense of utility. Fire and brimstone sermons might not necessarily leave one thinking that the preacher was surely right, but I suspect that they would be quite sufficient for the listener to conclude that trusting God would be a better bet than rejecting God. But otherwise, I think Douthat's implication that all religious believers, at least all Christian believers, are utterly convinced of the truth of their beliefs is a dubious assumption. For one reason, I have long come to see faith and doubt as being two sides of a coin. It's only if you believe in some sense that it makes any sense for you to talk about having doubts. If you didn't believe at all, you couldn't have any doubts. Thus, the presence of doubt is only possible because of the presence of faith. By the way, I can imagine someone listening might ask, but wouldn't it be better for someone to have complete and utter belief? My response to such a question goes like this. Doubt is part of our mental apparatus. I've talked before about the fact that we are divided selves. One way in which this is evident is that it's quite possible for a part of us to be convinced of something and another part of us to be less convinced or to have questions. What we call conscience in human beings is simply the ability of one part of you to question another part of you. I can't see how anyone would want to argue against conscience, as if the ability to ask whether one might be wrong is somehow a bad thing. Indeed, if we didn't have this capacity to ask whether we are necessarily right, we wouldn't be able to question ourselves. Put another way, without the ability to doubt or question one's own beliefs and actions, one could never change. 
you'd be stuck believing and doing things that if you had the ability to question yourself, you might decide that these are bad things to believe or pursue. So the possibility of self-doubt is utterly necessary to being a moral person. People who are utterly convinced of their own righteousness are often dangerous. Obviously, if you're completely awash in doubt, that could prevent you from believing or doing anything. Thus, we can say that having a certain capacity for belief, as well as a certain capacity for doubt, are both good things that keep each other in check. Once you can see that belief and doubt are not only not incompatible, but actually go hand in hand, it no longer makes sense to see them as simply opposites. Indeed, I think the most basic formula for belief can be found in the passage in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, in which a man brings his son, who is having seizures, to Jesus' disciples for healing. At one point, the man, who's clearly at his wit's end, says to Jesus, If you're able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus' response is somewhat indignant, If you are able. But then the man says something that I think puts all of this in perspective. I believe, help my unbelief. I consider this virtually the formula for faith. By its nature, belief is not the same as certainty. What this man lacks is any kind of certainty that Jesus could help his son. However, the very fact that he went out of his way to bring his son to Jesus and his disciples indicates that he clearly believes that they could help. But his belief is just that, belief, and not certainty. Jesus rebukes this man and others for lack of belief. But I sometimes wonder when I read those rebukes that mm, Jesus maybe is probably asking for a bit too much. How could this man have been certain that Jesus both could and would heal his son? However, notice the principal concern of these Christian critics and doubt that himself is belief. One of the things I find problematic about Christianity is that when you come down to it, there are rather significant differences between various forms of Christianity. I could put that in the opposite way and say that Christianity is many things to different people. In speaking to a Unitarian who claimed that she didn't believe a lot of things in the Bible, the famed atheist Christopher Hitchens tries to correct her by saying, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you really are not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Note that this statement is 100% about very specific theological beliefs. It is absolutely nothing to say about how one lives or whether one follows Jesus. You might think that if you sign up for these specific beliefs, then of course you'll live a life in accordance with Jesus' teachings. But my own experience of people who consider themselves to be Christians is that they are often very poor at doing that. I'm looking at you, evangelicals. You have managed to insist on your rights to believe a bunch of very questionable things, but you've been very poor in living out the faith that you say that you possess. Put another way, it's so much easier to believe in certain theological points than it is to live the life that Jesus models for us. In a sense, that almost reminds one of the Dunning-Kruger effect. This is the idea that those who are not particularly bright tend to vastly overestimate their abilities and knowledge. And so it seems to me that those who most loudly proclaim their allegiance to Christianity are often some of the poorest examples of being 
Christ-like. Of course, this also gets to a really important aspect, the idea that Christianity is a worldview or a belief system. I don't have any question that it is that too, but I doubt that most Christians throughout time have thought that way about it. Actually, one of the problems with any definition of Christianity in terms of beliefs comes up against two basic difficulties. One is that what we call Christianity is hardly uniform. Growing up, this problem wasn't even remotely a problem. We as evangelicals were sure of our rightness, that we were the one true tradition in Christianity, that questioning this would have been impossible. We were convinced that, say, Roman Catholics and the mainline folks were all going to hell. Yet if one is willing to entertain the possibility that at least some of these other folks and these other traditions might just be Christians too, then this opens the door to various complications. For it would mean admitting that there are multiple Christianities that come inflected in various ways. Let me consider for a moment the Anabaptist and the Calvinist versions. Anabaptists believe that following Jesus is a choice one makes. That's the main reason why Anabaptists don't practice infant baptism. They are convinced that each person must decide for himself or herself and then be baptized. I should add that Anabaptism is a general term for a variety of different identifications, including those in the Mennonite tradition. Calvinism also comes in different varieties. One of those varieties holds to double predestination, which is the view that sometime before the creation of the world, God decided that some human beings would end up with him in heaven, and the other ones would uh, end up, you know, in the other place. Note that neither of these events would have had anything to do with what actual human beings would choose. Indeed, some who are very strong in their Calvinism want to say that choice, at least as it's normally defined, has nothing to do with anyone's eternal destiny. I remember attending a lecture given by a Calvinist on the thorny issue of free will and predestination. Although I thought he seemed to be holding the party line, some of the audience got up to his feet, Bible in hand, in order to castigate the speaker. The problem? The speaker wasn't saying strongly enough that none of us have any part in what happens. To quote him as closely as I can remember, he said something like, you need to maintain that God causes us to sin and then holds us accountable for those sins. The problem that I have here is that these differences merely between Anabaptists and Calvinists make me wonder if these are really two different versions of Christianity or whether they are really two different Christianities. I have to confess that in my younger days I was content to live and let live. As time went by, I was more than willing to say, well, there are various types of Christianity that count as Christianity. But at this point in my life, I have serious questions regarding how these two versions can be construed as different versions of the same thing. While both would or could agree with Christopher Hitchens' definition of Christianity, there are significantly differing views as to what Christ's death is supposed to accomplish and how it affects us. If you're a Calvinist, you assume that Christ's death doesn't really affect those who are not part of the elect, doesn't have anything to do with them. But these two striking views offer very different conceptions of what Christianity is supposed to be about. For Anabaptists, 
or we could say an Arminian, so I'm not going to explain that term here. Christianity is a path open to all. For Calvinists, it's only open to the elect. Further, these two views represent diametrically opposed views regarding human freedom. For simplicity's sake, I've decided to talk simply about two traditions in Christianity. But if I were to expand on this briefly, I would point out that while some people would want to exclude Unitarians from the Christian tradition, it's not immediately obvious that they simply don't qualify. I suspect that there would be others who would have questions about, say, whether Quakers count as real Christians, since they're considerably less concerned about all the metaphysical stuff, such as Jesus being eternally begotten of the Father, or even that God exists. I've come across at least one Quaker minister, as in I met the person, who described himself as an atheist Christian. You can imagine my surprise. What that means in practice, though, is such a person doesn't believe in the existence of God, let alone the divinity of Jesus. Instead, the person identifies as a Christian because he sees himself as following or trying to follow Jesus' teachings. To put all this differently, it all depends on who you asked as to who or what qualifies as Christian. The Unitarian criticized by Hitchens advised him to direct his critique at fundamentalists. While I don't have any absolute data here, I suspect that many Unitarians would consider fundamentalists to be something a little less than Christian, and perhaps even anti-Christian. In turn, of course, the fundamentalists would no doubt denounce the Unitarians as not being true Christians. I've heard exactly that criticism from the evangelicals with which I grew up, though the criticism certainly wasn't limited to Unitarians. And this leads me to a second point, namely that if you study church history, you come to realize that the idea that there's something like a core orthodoxy is problematic. While there is the nostalgia of going back to the early church, I suspect that most evangelicals wouldn't recognize it. The early church had only the most rudimentary theology, and it was constantly in motion. In the first century, you have the Docetists, who believed that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body. Instead, he just appeared to be human. In the second century, there are the Marcionists, who claim that God, as depicted in the Hebrew Bible, is very different from the one depicted in the Christian Bible, so the Old Testament versus the New Testament. I'm not a Marcionist, but it doesn't take all that much study of the two Testaments to realize that there are, at best, significant tensions between God, as depicted in the Hebrew Bible, and God as depicted in the Christian Bible. The usual explanation of this difference is what's called progressive revelation. I don't take issue with that term or with the concept. In fact, it actually only makes my point more obvious. Christians at different times and in different places have had serious disagreements regarding even some of the most basic aspects of what people call Orthodox Christianity. Now, about now, I expect someone to object that the core of Orthodox Christianity has always been the same. Most likely, the objection would be accompanied by reference to the Nicene Creed or some other kind of document. However, the difficulty with using any creed as a benchmark is the fact that there were so many different church councils only would seem to confirm that while they were designed to bring about uniformity, the fact that there were so many of them makes one realize that not everyone was on board. 
in the evangelical world in which I grew up, there was the idea that we are somehow mystically connected to the early church with nods to Luther and other reformers. Yet many aspects of evangelical theology are out of line with Christian history. Evangelicals insist that you need to pray to ask Jesus into your heart in order to be saved. I think that if you were to say this to most Christians of the past, they would simply stare at you with incomprehension. Or we could take the literal way in which evangelicals approach the Bible. According to evangelical teaching, this is the way that the people of the Lord have always read Scripture. But that's not the case. The vast majority of Christians and Christian theologians throughout history have read the Bible in multiple ways, with the literal reading being generally the least important. If you go back to the Church Fathers, you'll discover that they emphasize the other ways of reading Scripture. The allegorical sense in which Jesus' life is interpreted by way of the Hebrew Bible, the moral meaning, which teaches us how to live, and the anagogical meaning, which is about the future. Someone might respond that Christianity is a fluid category, which is certainly correct. But then it's not nearly as clearly demarcated as many Christians assume it to be. Or to put that point differently, evangelicals love to talk about how they are the inheritors of true Christian orthodoxy, but fail to see that whatever evangelicalism is, it represents a significant departure in many ways from that orthodoxy. To go back to that quote from Hitchens, while the view that Jesus' death atoned for the sins of the world is common, it should be mentioned that this is merely one interpretation of that death. There are others, such as the ransom theory, in which Jesus' death is a victory over the forces of evil, which is usually considered to be the view of the early church fathers. And then comes the satisfaction theory of the atonement, in which Jesus paid the price for sin and thus satisfied the demand by the Father for blood to be paid. The second theory was first articulated by Anselm at the end of the 11th century. In contrast to both of these theories is that of Peter Abelard, who held that Jesus' life and death was an example for us to follow. More recently, Gustav Aulen has argued that the Church Fathers didn't hold the ransom theory, in which Jesus' death serves as a kind of payment to the devil. The details of that claim would be more than can be considered here, but merely the fact that some theologians disagree regarding what the Church Fathers believe is enough to make it clear that there's never been a clear consensus. As for himself, Allen argues that Jesus' death liberates humanity from sin. One could argue that these are merely different interpretations of Jesus' death, but they represent significantly different conceptions of what that death was designed to do. But let's move beyond that discussion to what Dalvet says next. He writes, Some sort of religious attitude is essentially demanded, in my view, by what we know about the universe and the human place in it. But every sincere searcher is likely to follow their own idiosyncratic path. When I first read this statement, I was immediately struck by the fact that Dalvet does not here, or for that matter anywhere else, at least as far as I can tell, define the term religion. To be fair, very few people actually define the term religion when they use it. But that lack of definition proves extremely problematic, since everyone simply assumes they already know what religion is. For instance, the vast majority of people, at least in the West, assume that religion equals belief in God. Indeed, that assumption is what drives Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, in which it is simply accepted that religion equals belief in God. 
In the second chapter of that text, titled The God Hypothesis, Dawkins gives a historical account of how we moved from polytheism to monotheism and then to glorious secularism. He might respond by saying that Dawkins isn't trying to talk about religions, just the ones that include belief in gods or in one god. Indeed, he defines the God hypothesis as follows. There exists a superhuman, supernatural intelligence who deliberately designed and created the universe and everything in it, including us. It is telling that Dawkins does not mention Buddhism or Confucianism or Jainism or any of the other religions that are non-theistic. One could suggest that this lack of inclusion is simply due to these religions not fitting the mold that Dawkins has created. But I think it's actually much more likely that Dawkins simply doesn't get that there are theistic and non-theistic varieties of religion. It rather reminds me of one of the students who took my philosophy of religion course, in which I tried very hard to explain what religion is to students who clearly had about as much knowledge of religion as Dawkins, which is to say, not very much. In one of the final essays, one student simply declared that he or she, the essays came to me without any indication of who'd written them, so I don't know if it's a he or she, he or she simply didn't believe that a non-theistic religion could count as a religion. Reading that comment, my first thought was simply this. You are a first-year student at university. You do not have the requisite knowledge to make pronouncements about what is or is not a religion. Bear in mind, even though I have considerable knowledge about religions in general, and certainly certain religions more specifically, I don't think I can pronounce either on such an issue. I can question it. I can show why I think it's wrong. I can provide a different taxonomy but I can't simply pronounce. Having castigated Dawkins for his lack of theological knowledge, I have to say that Douthat isn't much better. He asks an enormous question, where does religion come from? But he only talks about Christianity. Is he not aware that there are other religions? Thus his question is really, where does Christianity come from? You should realize that Douthat and Dawkins aren't alone in equating Christianity with religion. Philosophers of religion routinely use the terms religion and Christianity virtually interchangeably. And that helps explain why many readers simply weren't buying what Douthat was saying. One of them, who identifies as main UK fan, interesting uh, moniker, writes, why is some sort of religious attitude essentially demanded by what we know about the universe and the human place within it? He or she goes on to say, I am awestruck by the scale of the universe and the existence of consciousness within it, but I fail to see how a religious attitude is demanded by any of it. Notice the definition of being religious at work in this response. The religious attitude is a kind of response to the complexity of the universe. On this view of religion, religion is like a kind of holy awe, the recognition that one's place and the universe is small. That is a perfectly acceptable way of thinking about religion. But we should remember that it's merely one aspect of a religious feeling or sense. We'll have to end there. Our discussion of this article will continue in the next episode, and I hope you will join us then. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the paypal app the username for both 
is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want, you can just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll be joining us for the next episode.